Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast for film fans by film fans. Every episode, we look at films old and new to choose what should be preserved for all time in our movie vault. With lively topics, big questions, and crazy challenges to entertain us and our guests, we always look to have fun by giving you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching, even if there are some duds along the way. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a preview of what to expect in today's episode. I'm not going to lie. When watching uh, when watching this film, especially watching uh, Merlin's acting, I just basically went to David. This is where Die gets a lot of his acting like advice from. <laughs> There's definitely a way where Die just copies a lot of these mannerisms. <laughs> oh, yeah, I agree. I'm going to get you a metal skull cap. You can just yeah. wear it around. <laughs> It's my dream. <laughs> and sometimes a dream, sometimes a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. Well, good movies. Hello and welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast that gives you the topics worth discussing and the movies worth watching. I'm your host, David Osger, and we're back after our summer vacation. And as ever, as loyal as Dwayne The Rock Johnson is to the jungle, we have Craig McDonald, who's very loyal to this podcast, and with us today. Hello, Craig. You were going to say a dog then, weren't you? You are going to say loyal as a dog, <laughs> because we're going to consistently remind you about what's coming up in a couple of weeks' time. You have to stick in the knife, David, don't you? Hey, I was, try- I was trying to be kind. I also did consider, like, you know, Vin Diesel, like, family. You know, I was like, oh, it's a bit dated at this point. It's been a few weeks since that, that meme was going around. But yeah, it's uh, great to be back after we've uh, been away for a few weeks. And uh, yeah, we've got a fantastic episode today in which we've been building this up for a very long time. Uh, We've got two of our returning guests who have previously joined us before and been on an episode before uh, geeking out about some fantastic franchise stuff. Today we thought we'd talk all about films based on Arthurian legend as the new film The Green Knight has now come out. Unfortunately, it's been delayed in the UK, uh, COVID, but... It has come out in the USA and it will hopefully be coming out at some point in the UK. Uh, It's still penned for 2021, uh, but still we can get ready for it and get in the feeling of all those historical kind of epics that you get involving medieval England, etc. And who better to join us for that is one guest specifically who has been building up to this moment like King Arthur, it, it's his, you know, his right. <laughs> He's been waiting to lift the sword out of the stone and come on to our podcast and talk about Arthurian films. It is Di Hill. Hello, Di. Hello. I'm very overwhelmingly excited to be here today. Uh, the very first time you asked me to come on the podcast, I said, oh, what sort of subjects are you interested in? I went, King Arthur. I want to talk about Bananas King Arthur movies, and that's all I want to do. And you've said no to me all these times until today. We've been building up to we I think you were like sort of halfway through your, your watch through of those at that time, though, weren't you? You needed time to sort of watch them all. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's Well, I'm still not seeing all of them. There's, from like the sort of 60s and 70s, there's a whole load of really, really cheap King Arthur movies as well mm. that are just absolutely ridiculous, um, of which I've seen so many now. I can start recognizing props that have been used in previous movies and recycled. Oh. So like um 
quite a few of them have the same Stonehenge prop, which they just always push over because they're like quite, they're just quite light fiberglass Stonehenge bits. And so someone always turns up and goes, this is a bit rubbish and destroys Stonehenge for a bit. Makes lots of sense. And that's the sort of tone that a lot of these movies have. Yeah, that, that's definitely something that I found in my research. It's just like there's a large degree of varying projects of quality, TV movies, that kind of stuff, which sometimes makes makes it harder for us to sort of like nail down, okay, what are we going to talk about? Um, but we sort of settled on, you know, something quite sort of modern, more modern adaptation and uh, something more old school and uh, going in, in kind of <laughs> very different approaches in some some ways, but we'll we'll get on to that. Uh, but obviously, Di, usually when you do come on, we still try to keep it sort of like history-based or kind of like niche odd films and because as craig kind of alluded to soon we're going to be talking about like a very odd film but to celebrate uh, 50 episodes this is our 49th episode and uh, you are one of the guests who's uh, joined us many times so i was just wondering before we get into this which is the topic that uh, you've been waiting waiting for what's what's been some of the standout topics or films that we have discussed for you so far because i think out of all the guests you probably have had some of the most bonkers or kind of like crazy old school stuff in which we're talking about literally going from like you know godzilla to you know frankenstein etc yeah i think the um we did the whole star trek one as well i think the frankenstein kind of hammer mo- movie monsters was the most fun and we did because they all were based on weird books as well which i have a hobby of reading all these old stupid books so um yeah that was really fun and seeing how these stories get created and then readapted for a new audience and then they've been readapted again to be different now uh, and it's just very similar to the theme with king arthur movies where they're just constantly being rewritten and readapted to a suit whatever the culture of the the writer is within so that makes it really really fascinating to talk about this stuff because it it really reflects back upon the people telling the stories which is cool um, yeah but i also enjoyed when we did that big quiz yes yeah more of that to come. You know, you'll be teamed up with Stefanos again, I'm sure. So as you mentioned there as well, uh, we did talk Star Trek at some point, And on that episode, uh, we were joined by one of our uh, other sort of nerdy sort of friends who've joined us many times on this podcast. Uh, we haven't seen him in a while. He's been uh, distanced in, in the pandemic. We've been separated. So uh, please welcome back, Matt Troy. Hello, Matt. Hello. It's great to be back. And if if this is Die Hill's King Arthur moment, this is my Merlin the Wizard. This is I've been freed from my crystal cave, and uh, <laughs> I'm here and I'm ready to podcast. Please say that you're appearing in the way that he does at one point in Excalibur, which is literally just they cut the camera and then he just appears like jump cut like straight away. Going to be appearing in Craig's bedroom tonight to scare him. <laughs> Either, either that or you're just gonna sort of mimic like tim the enchanter from multi python and just gonna start spouting fire everywhere <laughs> i would love to do that <laughs> that would be ideal for me it seems a uh, very very up your street so matt what have you been up to how's the last year been for yourself uh, have you been watching anything crazy any challenges you've had sort of film tv wise i know sometimes you sort of give yourself those mad challenges or sort of deep dives I've not actually. I think that the pandemic was boring enough for me not to try and slog my way through 365 movies in a year like I did three years ago. Um, so I've actually watched hardly any films uh, in this pandemic at all. I've watched hardly any TV. 
I have nothing to show for the last 18 months. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have, um, I mean, I still podcast. We make things quite is on hiatus at the moment. During the pandemic, we will be returning at some point. But I also know um, part uh, one third of uh, The Measure of a Fan, which is uh, an ongoing Star Trek podcast um, oh. with my good friend Patrick Montgomery and his brother, and now also my good friend Elliot Red. Um, so that's been keeping me reasonably sane working on that. And in personal news, I'm getting married. Oh, congratulations. Fantastic news. Yeah, I'm getting married in October. I'm going to Canada to get married. My my fiance is real. <laughs> you just don't know where she goes to a different school. <laughs> is there any Star Wars theme into this to this wedding? I wish, uh, but no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I couldn't afford the ziggurat on Yavin for uh, to conduct the ceremony. So <laughs> we just I'm just doing it in Toronto instead. Yeah, you just get the cantina band in. I'm pr- I'm pretty sure they go for quite a low rate these days. Surely. <laughs> Yeah, or I'll, I'll give him a shout. Or just at the party afterwards, just pay some guy to like come up to you and just say that he doesn't like you, and you can just you know have his friend come in and be like, "I'm sorry about him," <laughs> and then it just ends up with uh, somebody getting attacked with a laser sword. <laughs> Hopefully, all those things will come true and more. Yeah, Matt Troy. We've already talked about him as a Merlin counterpart, but now we're also talking about him as an Obi Wan Kenobi counterpart. You're going through all the wizard, <laughs> wizard references here. Generic wizard character, Matt Troy. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, we're very excited today, as as you can tell, to to talk about all of this. As I mentioned earlier, the main reason we sort of like were inspired to talk about it is because of the Green Knight, which is a story which is based on Arthurian legend. Uh, it is the telling of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's a film that's coming from A24, so a lot of people have been uh, very excited for that. It's got Dev Patel. Uh, the studio is usually, you know, quite ambitious with his projects, got a lot of striking visuals. It's open to kind of like some mixed results, which I guess is kind of typical of King Arthur, you know, lore in, in a way. Uh, but it's got, you know, David Lowry is is the director of that as well. So, you know, you've got some other sort of prestigious talent attached to it. Um, but it's really kind of the first King Arthur project for quite a long time. I know obviously Die will have one in mind, which was like the last one uh, which came out. But it's surprising when you look at it how little there has been in, in the past few years. I suppose that they do kind of get mixed in with your Robin Hoods and and then sometimes maybe more like historical, religious kind of like epics, etc. But I guess the kind of like historical medieval stuff kind of has gone away with especially one reason I wanted to talk about King Arthur was because that was very much of that time in which they were making films like Troy and and Kingdom of Heaven and all of these kind of things. Uh, so, yeah, we thought it'd be fun to talk about these sort of adaptations from the two eras and as we've you know already established, we've got two sort of like experts here. Uh, we'll get on to like with Matt as well, like your links to uh, sort of the Arthurian stuff. But but Dai, to to sort of introduce us, to get us in in the mood for all of this kind of stuff, uh, we clearly need like a bit of a history lesson. So can you sort of teach us <laughs> basic terms? What are the Arthurian legends? What what are the stuff that you should expect or would think would come into an, an adaptation? What what is the bread and butter of King Arthur? Well, the trouble with talking about it is that what it ultimately is, is about a thousand years of a thousand different people writing and rewriting and rewriting the same story 
in a million different ways. And so when you look at it from kind of the outside, it seems like this huge bustling anthill of a subject where you can never quite figure out what's going on, um, which is kind of why it's so open to more interpretations. When we look at these modern movies, each one is wildly different and completely bananas from the last because you can just pick and choose a bazillion different details and points that you want to. So I thought I'd give a brief overview of the actual uh, literature. Um, because actually it's pretty simple when you just break it down into a few genres in kind of chronological order. But basically it begins in around about 600, there's the very first reference to King Arthur in a poem by, called the Gododin by the Bard Anirin. He just kind of compares a character to this great warrior Arthur, so it doesn't tell us much, but it tells us that around about 600 he was already a very, very significant character in sort of spoken word storytelling. And then from then on there's a a couple of sort of pseudo-historians called Nenius and a guy called, um, he's known as Geoffrey of Monmouth, he's really, he wrote his own name as Galfredus of Monmouth. They write history books which have a history of Britain that include King Arthur and tell a story about this kind of warrior king. Um, but again, they don't have a huge amount of detail and they're not particularly historical. There isn't really any sense of, an, of a real historical King Arthur at all. There's no evidence for it. But around them, from kind of like 900 to 1100, you've got really the first Arthurian literature, which is this Celtic bardic um, poetry, which is unbelievably baffling and densely mythological and magical and completely weird, and it's amazing and I love it. So that's things like Kilach and Alwen, and there's a poem called The Gatekeeper, and uh, there's one by Taliesin, which is entirely about King Arthur going to war with a forest, and seemingly all the different plants and things are representing God knows what, but they're absolutely bananas. There's uh, giant boars with combs between their ears. There's um, all sorts of absolutely weird things. At one point, there's a list of, he, they list King Arthur's court at one point. And if you think, I can probably name about 20 kind of King Arthur characters. This book has 500 names of people and who they are, all in this humongous list that's meant to be read out, well, meant to be remembered and spoken from memory. Um, so there was this unbelievably rich and diverse um, tradition back in the early medieval which doesn't have much of the elements that we now associate with Arthur. So Guinevere is there and his magic sword, Excalibur is there, but things like the Round Table, Camelot, Lancelot, none of that is in the story yet. Not really until after 1100, the French start picking up the idea, and um, particularly Chrétien de Troyes, and that's where they create chivalric literature. And that's more what we imagine um, modern Arthurian literature what in, the, in the modern movies is based on this idea of chivalry, and a knight in big shining armor going on quests and the idea of doing good and protecting ladies and all that sort of thing. And that's where we get the round table and Camelot and the Holy Grail starts to evolve then as well. And this is where we get all of the, um, the a lot of the romances and the affairs and the whole thing goes from being violently bloody and grim into this sort of um, soap opera style um, affairs and um, romances and people all Stick doing all sorts of things you shouldn't ought to be doing. In between them, there's a mini literature uh, genre, which is largely ignored, which is um, the saints' lives. Um, there's a load of um, mostly the kind of Celtic saints. There's biographies of these guys um, from around about 1100, which are predominantly written around sort of Breton, um, Brittany and South Wales, in which all of these saints, they all know King Arthur as this sort of rampaging king, and they all kind of turn up and they'll like tell him off and temper him and teach him to be a bit calmer and more Christian about things. So um, they're really interesting stories, but they're largely ignored because King Arthur's only a secondary character, so people don't really care. So the crowning work of um, Arthurian literature really comes in sort of 1400s 
where a couple of people took all of this huge corpus of different individual stories and tries to write them as one big unifying saga. Um, the original one of those is called the Vulgate Cycle, um, but the really the greatest one and the most famous is um, called Le Mortes d'Arthur by a guy called Sir Thomas Mallory. Um, and that is this amazing tragedy that follows the birth and death. And this really what most of the modern adaptations are based on. And when we see Excalibur, that is really meant to be a version of Le Mortes d'Arthur. Le Mortes d'Arthur has about 800 pages that covers about 100 years of people's lives. So the idea of condensing them into one movie is kind of amazing. But when you reach the modern era, you've got the Victorians, you start watering everything down and taking out the blood and gore and guts and romances and start sort of like making it that kind of more, what we see a kind of a gentle fairy-like fantasy, which then in the 20th century when movies start to be made, they're quite gentle and sort of bloodless and sexless. Uh, and it's only in the last sort of 20 years, and so from Excalibur onward, really, that people start to be discovered a sort of a Game of Thronesy style fantasy way of telling stories, where suddenly the blood and the sex go back in and they get wilder again, which is quite fun. So does that make sense? That's a potted history, which ignores most of the stuff. Um, along the way, there is a story of King Arthur and the parrots, where King Arthur travels around Europe with a talking parrot. So there's an awful lot that could be covered, but we'll just hint to it. I um, just want to add in there, but I'm a very big fan of the Celtic legends like the Cagorde, the Battle of the Trees and the Journey to a Noon as well, where they go into the Welsh underworld. And yes, they, that's they, one that's really, really baffling and weird. One of my absolute favourites, like both of those, I think, are two of my favourite things from Welsh literature ever. And uh, all the way up to Arthur and his Knights of Justice, which was a cartoon in the 90s where a football team from America went back to um, Arthurian times and all filled in the roles of the, of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. One of the things that I'm quite interested in, because obviously we're going to talk about King Arthur 2004, and that is the day that it was released, not King Arthur 2004. <laughs> what am I, King Arthur, doing in 2004? <laughs> Although I would watch that. Is that obviously there's this sort of like uh, post-Roman Britain uh, kind of legend. And I think that if, if you're looking for the truth of Arthur, there's a really interesting theory, and it, you know it's a theory with a little bit of evidence behind it, that if you look at the known battle sites uh, that are attested to the Arthurian legend, you'll find that they're all by rivers. And there's a theory that runs that King Arthur was essentially a warlord um, that used horses to pin his foes against these uh, uh, rivers and, and kill them and, and you know be quite successful. It was his one move essentially. So that's one of the things that I'm quite interested in as well. I'm always sort of keen on a new theory. However, King Arthur 2004 ignores all of that. He knows everything, makes everything up, and I, and I can't wait to speak about it later. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. There's a number of things to say about <laughs> that. But I am glad, Matt, that you brought up like several points there because one, I was thinking like the Welsh connection because often you do get some some of that stuff creep in and like Welsh wording and that kind of stuff. And also, yeah, the bizarre adaptation stuff is when you do look at these lists, you're like half of this is like children's and cartoons, you know, like Bugs Bunny and stuff like that. Um, I was like, I just searched up that one you mentioned and yeah, it just goes to show 
the 90s was very much a time in which you were like it it wasn't even just like oh yeah teenage Mutant ninja turtles all this kind of stuff there's even like a, la- a layer of like cartoons which are like oh there was this le- these shows and then these ones you never heard about then these ones that some people knew about they were just making so many of these like kind of weird crazy team shows it was it was mad that um arthur and his knights of justice is not the only cartoon from that era because there was also prince valiant which was amazing and i loved which was based around prince valiant uh a a sort of a brand new knight uh king arthur's court and he had a friend who was a peasant the friend who was a woman Mm. Yeah, I remember weirdly, this is not the same era, but um, like as I was so like getting into a teenager, so stopping to watch like children's programs and stuff. But there was that King Arthur's like Disasters or something, which was like on CITV and it was like Rick Mail was playing like Arthur and it was like, I think Matt Lucas is like the, you know, Merlin and stuff like that. And it was just like, again, a very strange like adaptation. I, re- I remember that. Um, I can't remember the actual name of the knight's of the show but it was like the worst night in the land oh god yeah yeah it was just yeah it was just basically about like things how always things went wrong for him and stuff like that it was a very strange adaptation of arthur but but now now matt has said it all i can think when we say king arthur 2004 is like some like king arthur 2024 you know like he's like like just visiting like if everyone's seen that film it's just like that kind of like situation of king arthur's turned up in in modern day that is the story that like one day he'll come out of his cave and like turn up and like save the world which ever since i was a kid i've always imagined just some old man walking out of a cave being like right i'm gonna save the covid i'm gonna sort you out now <laughs> and then just walking up to locals being like does anyone know what i can do with this sword mate um so i've always wanted to make after 2004 uh, yeah, so Matt, so I was going to say, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, what it means to us, etc. Like our takes on the story, etc. So, you know, I remember as well, like, you know, back in our days of making sketches, etc. It was just like, oh, we're doing this sketch about a knight. Like, oh, well, come to me. I've got like a bunch of swords and armor and stuff like that. So what, what's always been your link to the, the legends and medieval stuff? Like what, what appeals to you about it? Why, why have you always been attracted to it? I, I've been obsessed with it since I was a little kid. And I used to have like, you know, storybooks. I think like pretty much every British kid in general does at some point encounter this uh, this myth and this legend. I think my favorite thing about this um, is it's an ensemble piece. So as well as obviously Arthur and Guinevere and Merlin and Morgan Le Fay and all these characters, then you've got like Lancelot, you've got Boars, you've got uh, Sir Galahad, you've got Gawain. And it's just like so many different characters and so many different things. So you'll never kind of run out of people to follow, um, even if you kind of are interested in it for years. And then you sort of get right down into nights like Agravane or like just random background characters. And um, I've, I always enjoyed that because you could, again, if you've got a show or a series that is based around a single superhero and you know how I feel about superhero movies, I'm not a fan. It's boring to me because it's just this one person and it's like a wish fulfillment fantasy. Then if you've got like an ensemble group like X-Men, <laughs> I prefer that because you can kind of feel like there's there's part of a team there. You could relate to one member in the team. You can understand your friends as different parts of it. And it is that whole cipher of Arthur that, that, that I was saying about that. It is, you know, everything to everyone. Um Captain Britain must be like your ideal superhero then. He's affiliated with the mutants and he's got the Arthurian legends there behind him. He's also awful. (laughs) 
<laughs> like I said, the plot line, the ideas behind King Arthur 2004 were quite exciting to me because it was a totally mm. new way of looking at it. But we'll see how that turned out later on. <laughs> but somewhere, there's something for everyone. Whether you like raunchy affairs <laughs> or dragons, it's all there yeah. somewhere. Or talking the two things. Yeah, they're the, they're the three things that people like. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's what's fascinating about looking at this is, like I said, when you look at a list of the adaptations, it's, you know, adaptations of Arthurian legend, adaptations of uh, the Tristan legend, you know, adaptations of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and uh, the Connecticut Yankee and there's, you know, Prince Valiant. There's so many, like you said, different facets and characters that you can focus on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And like Di and I um, bonded years ago over the, the legend of the Fisher King, which is yeah. is part of the Arthurian cycle. And, and and that one is like bizarre. And again, it's one of those really weird, probably Celtic based things. And if it's really, really weird, it's probably a Welsh, <laughs> you know, a sort of a Britain's like an early Britain's kind of story. But yeah, there's this fascinating side stories to this whole thing, like side quests, like, you know, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's, it's like, what yeah. the hell? Where is this story from? Yeah, but well, it's worth, because the movie is coming out. Um, by the way, the poem of Gawain and the Green Knight is amazing. It's one of the greatest works of um, medieval literature. Not popular at the time. Um, there's not many reproductions of it. It was only discovered in, I think, sort of beginning of the 20th century, like in someone's library. But that's a poem which is absolutely wild. That's got these weird ideas that might be Christian, might be completely pagan. It might be a horror, or it might be this sort of weird, um, sort of erotic thriller in which he gets caught in this love triangle between a lady and a and, a, and the Lord. And he's he ends up making out with both the lady and her husband. Um, so it's got these weird kind of homoerotic themes in it as well. Um, that's a poem which is just wild. So it seems incredibly appropriate that the movie coming out looks completely wild as well. Interesting fact as well for you, um, David, uh, the Battle of the Trees, uh, the poem, was actually translated into Sanskrit and makes up some of the words from the Duel of Fates from uh, The Phantom Menace. Wow. So it's it's nice that it isn't just gibberish then, like a lot of those kind of operatic... Yeah, it is not. It is... Sanskrit Battle of the Trees. And Battle of the Trees, uh, I, I applied for something last year, like a poetry sort of radio commission thing, which I, unfortunately I didn't get, but that was the poem I put forward, which is probably why they didn't choose me, because it's weird, and I didn't <laughs> read the translation. But the story is, um, so like, <laughs> is it, um, I forget which magician it was, now. is it like like Mathematholic or one of those, no, no, that's the Irish king, isn't it? One of the, um, Gwydion? The, the North I, Wales magician died. I can't died. remember. It's, it's a long time I've read that poem. It's yeah. so bizarre. So he's going to have a fight with the king of the underworld. So they, um, they raise an army of like trees using this sorceress called the Lady Akron. And um, they can win automatically. There's a snitch, essentially, in it. And the snitch is, if you guess the name of like the champion warrior of the other army, if you guess who it is, then you uh, you uh, you win outright so uh <laughs> the 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 champion in the underworld army was the king bendigedran uh, maybe as a ghost or or a zombie um and he had a shield with an older tree on it and they were like ah oh, 
that's Bran's shield. That's who their secret warrior is. We guess it's Bran. And they're like, flip, I ha- we have to go home now. <laughs> and representing these sort of strange uh, nature battles is, is a quite a common theme, which links back up to um, Gawain in the Green Knight, where you've got this sort of weird, like, single, you've got uh, kind of seasonal battles almost often p- appear. Um, where you've got this one duel which will decide the fate of the year almost. Um, and that's what we get in Gawain in the Green Knight, where it's Christmas and they have this sort of sort of dual game thing on one Christmas. And then he says, right, I'm not going to be around until next Christmas. So again, these um, weird relationships with nature and um, dueling and stuff in this cosmic sense of determining the fate of basically the weather, probably, you know, the formation of the seasons is... Um, yeah, there's loads and loads of weird layers of going on that you can interpret, or you can interpret it all to be something completely different. That's the fun of it. Yeah, it's the dark half and light half of the years that fight. You've got the Holly King and the Oak King, which also mm. tie into into Arthurian legend. And of course, the whole idea of like the Green Man, the spirit of the forest, which would have started out as a Celtic underworld deity and then slowly yeah. been degraded to a king of the fairies, to a, a mysterious figure that lives in the woods, to a local bogeyman even. And it's so cool. It's, there's just so much, so much fun yeah. in there. There's definitely stuff we'll get into as well with the, the the adaptations, especially with Excalibur. I feel in in some ways, in terms of like some of like what we see in terms of other fantasy kind of stuff, I suppose. But also looking at this list of adaptations, though, I hate to break it to you guys, but it might actually be a different film that we're talking about this because of maybe not Guywin and the Green Knight. Maybe actually there's a Scooby Doo directed DVD film coming out this year called. Scooby-Doo, and I can feel Craig's eyes already roll into the back of his head with this. The sword and the scoob. <laughs> <laughs> with the sword in scoob. <laughs> Raggy, like, get this sword out of That's me. what it implies. Well, they basically... pull the sword out of Scooby-Doo. Whoever may remove this sword from this dog, may he become king of England. What they're basically saying is, a vet is about to become king of England. <laughs> Yeah, we're definitely going to have fun talking about these films and adaptations today. And as we've sort of alluded to, and we'll talk about later as well, is that there are a lot of these adaptations, a lot of crazy different ones, and they go about them in lots of different ways. So the first one, which I think uh, I wanted to talk about, because we have mentioned there about kind of the way that it tackles like the history almost. So I suppose it comes like accurately after like our description of the legend to kind of like, as you guys have said, to be like, oh, well, this like isn't correct. And is kind of going down this very different path. But also I kind of saw it as maybe a like critically anyway, especially I don't know about everyone else's opinions, but it kind of this seems like the sort of more rough ride compared to what Excalibur is, especially in terms of like the response that the films had, but also in terms of the tone. So as we mentioned earlier, this is King Arthur. It's not King Arthur 2004. Unfortunately, that would be a fun project, but King Arthur released in the year 2004 you know its basic summary is a demystified take on the tale of king arthur and the knights of the round table uh this is directed by antoine fuqua uh written by david franzoni you've got clive owen as arthur you got kira knightley as guinevere you got Johan gruffith as lancelot mads mickelson as tristan uh, joel edgerton as gawain and Ray Winston as Bors, and uh, also you've got Stellan Starsgard as Surdic, and Stephen Delane as Merlin. 
so yeah, this was very much out at the time in which you were getting a lot of similar films mentioned before Kingdom of Heaven. The sort of similar ones that they've put like on the IMDb, I do agree with in a lot of sense. Like they got the Eagle, which I remember seeing, which I didn't think was too bad. Um, but you also had things like Master and Commander, Troy, just a lot of attempts at these like kind of historical tales. Um, you've also got like the Ridley Scott Robin Hood that they've affiliated it with. But again, this was sort of more of the that early noughties where they were trying to capture that kind of success of things like Pirates of the Caribbean, etc. Especially by having somebody like uh, Kira Knightley in here. So yeah, this is so famous for kind of trying to be historically accurate, but then not not being, uh, making a lot of mistakes. And yeah, being very different in the sense that it's bringing Romans into this. So I suppose for a lot of people, it'd be very jarring because they are used to the more kind of fairy tale aspects to it. So there's not as much of that kind of magic uh, element. It's a lot more, like I said, like films like Troy, where they're trying to go at this from this historical approach, more of these like epic battles, etc. I can't say bloody or gory because it was like a PG sort of 13 film. So it did kind of feel weird that there wasn't kind of blood and gore. Uh, in this one, but there was in the 80s one, which is uh, also surprising. So, you know, general thoughts. Matt, you mentioned it uh, earlier, so I'll go to you first. What What, what is your, your general thoughts about King Arthur from the year 2004? I would have to say that actually it's absolute garbage and it has, oh, I'm going to say there's no redeeming features at all whatsoever. Maybe I should say what I feel. I'm I'm genuinely baffled that the director of Training Day, which is a good film, directed this. And I I can't understand. I don't think anybody understood the source material. Like the script writer, who I think wrote something amazing as well, which I can't remember what it is now. He's taken a bunch of information. It's basically, the it's like a Shakespeare was written by Kit Marlowe theory. Like it's, it's weird. And yeah, there's a core in it, which is right, because I've already talked about this, but then they just kind of like keep throwing stuff into it, like, oh, and this is happening, this, and, and the Saxons are going to invade north of England and Scotland, which never happened. But yeah, it's weird. It doesn't know what it wants to be. It's like a one last job movie. Uh, it's a King Arthur movie. It's an historically accurate movie that's not historically accurate. It's it's kind of like an early 2000s movie as well, because you've got people being displaced by war guerrilla fighters there's the whole Iraq war thing kind of probably folded a bit in there it's and again it's this raft of movies that have followed on from gladiator and then the accelerant of pirates of the caribbean for people to want to create like a uh, a viable uh, historical franchise out of out, out of nowhere and that's the film that the guy wrote it was gladiator i just searched it up so when you said he wrote something he wrote gladiator he wrote Gladiator, which was an incredible movie. And then he wrote this movie, which is basically the same thing. And it's absolute poo. But it's just so yeah. by the numbers, everything is so bland and boring and predictable. And in particular, the performances are so underwhelming, particularly Clive Owen. Who oh, he sounds like he's been sort of ADR'd later, but incredibly boringly. There's loads yeah. of shots where he's like glowering furiously. And like barely moving his lips, but you hear him really clearly go, I'm very unhappy about whatever this is that's happening. And it just doesn't fit the scene at all. And it's boring and pointless and completely ruins it, really. 
I feel like peanut butter on his gums and then just recorded his audio at another time. So like his mouth is moving. And it's annoying because Clive Owen isn't a bad actor. Like Clive Owen's in two of my absolute favorite films, which are um, Inside Men and Children of Men, the men duology, as I call them. And he's also in Closer, which I've never seen, but I'm led to believe is very good. And yeah, he just is so, he's got Leonardo syndrome in this film. Uh, in that he, because he's the leader, he has no interesting qualities like Leonardo from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lancelot is like sexy, Bores is massive. Mad, Mad Mickelson is kind of like this sort of like weird, mystical guy who's good at everything. And then well, he's a bit of a rubbishy kind of stereotype of the mysterious Easterner who's a bit yeah, magic yeah, in the distance. Like, Hawk Whisperer, as I like to think of him. <laughs> yeah, dressed up like a sort of Mongolian warrior for some reason. Yeah, with a bird. He's got like a, <laughs> a bird friend. For me, I definitely think the weirdest performance is Stellan Skarsgård as the leader of the Saxons. Because throughout it, he's just walking around as if he's drunk. And just every now and then, he just doesn't, he just mumbles something and then eventually just goes, killer, burn him. Just just at the end of every conversation, that Dave and I were just joking about it. First of all, we found it bizarre in his opening scene. He stops one of his men from like assaulting a woman, and then she thanks him, and he's like, killer. It's like, what? Why do you... Why? And then, just, and then we just joked at the end of every scene, he was just going to randomly have something killed or burned just out of nowhere. But he just... He just had no charisma whatsoever. And he was he was just there and we were like, why are you here? What the, f- what are you doing? It's the issue of having a villain who never meets the hero. So they're yeah. not, he's not an antagonist because he, he just doesn't meet Arthur ever. Yeah. In all the movies where you have like the sort of mysterious villain who's like looking over a crystal ball or something, following the villain being like, the hero being like, mm, I'll catch you one day. And it's a bit abstract and weird. It's like that. And so they're having to try to desperately create some sort of character without having any emotional connection with the heroes. The bizarre thing about the, about the Saxons as well in this film, and Stellan Skarsgård in particular, is that they, you can't even say they're on the other side of the wall because at various points they're on both sides of the wall. And and he's like, they have no idea, like the people in the film have not done any research about what Saxons are. These are Vikings yeah. that they're fighting here. They they look like Vikings and they talk like Vikings and they do Viking things. And and I just don't believe that anyone's any put any real effort into creating quote unquote Saxons for this movie. Well, to be fair, the, the Saxons at that era were raiders who would turn up on ships and raid the um you know the eastern seaboard. But it's the issue of like, why did they go the other side of the, if you're on a boat, you can just sail a bit south of the wall and then walk <laughs> in and just dodge the wall completely. Why did they go to Scotland, which is further away? It's like they went to the wrong place. Like they just parked in the wrong place. And they're like, ah, well, we've all got off the boat now, so we can't all get back on. We look stupid. Yeah. We're paying by the day for those things. That 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 was the funny thing with what you said about the Vikings thing was because as well, they have they're like, oh, we'll have a Swedish actor as like the, the villain. So then that makes it confusing. And the fact that like he's there with blonde hair, is it like his son or something has a very sort of Viking kind of beard and stuff. So that that confuses things and muddles things. And and yeah, like you guys said, I think part of the problem with him as well is that like when I think of something like for some reason, I was kind of getting like Mulan vibes when they go to that like ice river of like, oh, what are they going to do? Like, you know 
bow and arrow one of the like cliffs and it's going to fall on them or something like that. But at least in like the Mulan films, it kind of is like, oh, this guy is doing horrible things and we're always on like the back tail of them. And then they, you know, she finally fights him at the end. But again, it's not even that. They're kind of like you said, they're just constantly being chased by them. But then there's no context of why they should be afraid of who they're getting chased by. They're just kind of like, oh, uh, the Saxons are on our tail. But there's no kind of like this guy is on our tail. This guy has done all of this kind of stuff. So there's there's no build up to it. Yeah, he Arthur needed to at least kind of glower at the leader of because they the scene where he kind of glowers at the son of the leader at that ice flow battle thing, but he never meets. They just the main villain. He just has literally no idea he even exists. Like that ice river scene wound me up so much. What a way to basically show that the opponents are nothing to worry about. If literally all they do all they're doing are firing arrows that you're completely missing. Like, I'm pretty sure some people were just, like, not aiming and still killing, like, soldiers. And the fact that they were still willing to move across loads of cracked ice, which the moment it smashes, all of it just instantly goes and they just start plummeting. And also, when the Saxons are being shot at, why does nobody just... They've all got shields in their hands. Just lift it up, mate. Just lift the shield up and they won't shoot you with arrows anymore. It's really simple. The Saxons are famous... For one thing, well, combat-wise, it's the shield wall. <laughs> and they just don't bother. It's yeah. amazing. Something funny that Craig also like pointed out when we were watching it as well. Which <laughs> God, might... this, yeah. Yeah, Go which on. was the fact that like they kept marching with a kind of like Roman artillery kind of sound effect of like heavy like armor and kind of like, yeah, we're like, you know, really lots of metal clanging together but when you see them they're just there with like fabric and leather boots and stuff and yeah they have some swords and shields they're wearing shoes yeah they were just walking like an actual like heavy artillery armored force and i was like what are you doing this is this is just bad you know like they also they also had drummers drumming a beat with no drum beat audible like just (laughs) (laughs) there's some person there going like and nothing's happening and all you can hear is just like the marching, and I'm just looking at their feet, like they're wearing they're wearing shoes. Like, how are they making this amount of noise on ice as well? Like, what's going on? Yeah, you haven't got the excuse of like, oh, this is a 70s or 80s or even 90s film. It's like you've had like Lord of the Rings, you've had lots of other epics which have managed to pull off these kind of like massive battle scenes. So I was just there thinking like, who worked on this? Did they just have no idea what they were doing, or were they from like you know a smaller you know, like TV background or something like that, because there just wasn't any kind of like sense of one like scale, like the the ending of the film actually made me laugh. Like, you know, Craig can attest to this. I was like actually like laughing the amount of times in which they were like, there's six guys and like an entire army. I joked at one point, like, did they just not have budget for the other half of the army? Like, we'll have this big war between two armies, but we just won't have the one half because we don't have the budget for it. Because <laughs> it was like, how do they keep getting bested by just six guys running around in the mist? That's the bit that annoyed me. They were like, ooh, we'll use the mist. And like, it was like, but that's should be detrimental to Arthur and his friends as well. They haven't got superpowers and can see through mist. <laughs> Specifically as well, we're going to have half our army single file through the gates. Go out there like, ah, huh? where's everyone? And just get absolute, absolutely destroyed. And then they single file everyone in again and they just bewildered again of what's going on. It's just like, oh, come on, lads. Yeah. There's an indeterminate of um, the sort of Celtic friends who like 
there's like one shot where there seems to be like a hundred guys running in to help out. And then like when they get to the battle, you can never entirely tell how many of those picks are actually meant to be there or not. Occasionally there's loads. Thank you. And certainly there's just once. As well, Di, because they are definitely picks. That's what they are. I don't know where this woad thing comes from, right? Well, I didn't, I thought it's sort of, the, I think the idea is that, that it's meant to be sort of them take, disrespecting the native people because they don't like them. But if you're going to be doing that, like Arthur should start giving them a different name when he comes to respect them. Yeah. There should be yeah. a moment where he goes, wait, you're not just dirty woads, you're people, you know, you are yeah. the Picts or the Britons or something, you know, but it's just an afterthought, really. If I'm right, woad is the body paint that they wear, isn't it? The blue paint? Yeah, and there's no evidence that the Picts wore woads. Um, it's mentioned um, a few hundred years ago, Caesar, when he invaded in his books, he mentions um, the British in southern Britain as wearing woad. Um, but hundreds of years later, on a, you know the other end of the island, so Where it's cold. You know, people imagine that they wore woad, but there's no evidence at all. They probably wore clothes, I reckon. One thing I would really like to complain about, and I, this is obviously as my character for this this podcast, is yeah. the absolute lack of Merlin in this. Yeah. They weren't even bothered setting up Stephen Delane, the awesome Stephen Delane, who plays Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, as Merlin, if he's going to do nothing. And mm. what's even more frustrating about that Merlin character is that we find out halfway through the film that he killed Arthur's mother. And it just seems like somebody leaned over the script right shoulder and went, Put in a bit where he kills Arthur's mother. What? No, I've got to... No, just put it in now. Was like, shouldn't I put it in the beginning so we can put... <laughs> nah, just put it in now. Yeah, and it's a flashback when there's been no flashbacks before in the movie. And suddenly you're like, <laughs> oh, flashback now. And then to have it right at the end, it's like the guy who killed his mother marries him. <laughs> I just love as well when he picks up the sword. Like, there's some awful child acting in this. You know, again, you can be forgiving a child actor sometimes, but in this, it's like, why are they all consistently bad? But the fact that, like, that kid just picks up the sword and just runs at a burning building. Because, again, I laughed when the mother died because it was, like, so just badly shot and just the way you like cart hits her and she just falls over and his instant reaction is i'm going to get a sword and just go into the burning building is like what i think your exact words at the time is like what's he going to do fight the fire with a sword <laughs> yeah but also with clive owen something i was going to mention as well is like you guys said he has such like bad dialogue but i hated the way he was almost just this tool for the the plot a lot of the times in which he just didn't have a character and then he kind of there's one really stands out to me. I think it's when the the boy that they save, the the sort of Romans that they have to sort of uh, extract from that uh, certain fort or castle or whatever, and uh, he sort of like walks up to him and be like, "So, what are you going to do now?" Or like, "How do you feel about this?" Or something like that. It was just such a hammy way of just being like, "Oh, we haven't heard from this kid. Let's get Arthur to like, you know, bring in this topic of like how he feels about the Romans and and the Britons and stuff." So he's like, "So." are you like worried about your father or something like that? It was just such a, and he just kept doing that. Then he kept then going to these characters like Lancelot, what do you feel about this? And like, it's like, as almost, they couldn't have any natural dialogue or scenes in which things were just like happening through setup. They were just like, Oh, we'll, we'll just have Arthur introduce this plot point or like Arthur will introduce this bit of emotion. And it's like, and it, it it was just weird to me that as well, did anyone else feel he looked a bit like Nicolas Cage in the final fight? Like, why did he dress in black and like suddenly have like eyeliner on and stuff? It was so strange. This 
this actually comes to my uh, my kind of final point on on this film things that make me really angry about it is that it's um it's it's got this braveheart element where they're all about freedom and i'm like freedom of what because like you said you've got the pelagius kind of idea of free will um but freedom is essentially a meaningless concept without an ideology behind it like what are you freeing yourself from what are you freeing yourself to become is everybody on board with this is everybody free at the end and the answer is no because um, essentially just from like you know winning a bit of trust arthur a sort of romano britain has now become king of the picts the king of the picts as well so what is this freedom it, it's yeah, all really yeah. messed up kind of amorphous nonsense yeah well that's interesting well that kind of one of the main themes in the medieval literature is that idea of um particularly like the role of law in society uh, and that's what the round table is all about really is this idea of when kings go wrong and you know having a round table where everybody's equal equal under the law and has to follow the law um but yeah this movie just uses freedom and free will as this as just a vague you know yeah it, it's sort of and it's it's, I mean, not to denigrate American audiences who I, I, I do believe are honestly better than this, but it is just to kind of pin, pin it to something for them. Like, oh, what's this about? Oh, he's fighting for freedom. All right, okay, yeah, let's go along with it. And uh, on, on the point of the round table, I do love that line where um, the Roman guy is like, a round table? <laughs> what, yeah. what evil is this? <laughs> yeah, a round table. What evil is this roundness? It's just a... <laughs> what witchcraft is this? that's one of the things i'll credit with i did think that round table looked cool i was like that that's you've designed that quite well it isn't just a wooden table it was like a cool ring and everything like that but apart from that that's what made it so disappointing that even the sets are rubbish there's literally like what looks like a foam castle gray wall at the end of it the costumes i even felt were really bad so again from that era of like lord of the rings etc why is the production value so bad on this and i agree with you guys i think it's it's weird that they didn't set up the film to be more like here is the legend or here is the context of who all these people are like a map or something but then to almost at the end go like oh here's the you know the kind of legend stuff you know here's him with guinevere and all this he's the king he's the rightful king and you know i think even craig said like how, why is he king? Like, what, you know, how has that happened kind of thing? Because you aren't even given the context of what the legend is in the film. Like, of course, yeah, you might have that context from what you know outside, but the film itself should still tell you that in some way or form. And yeah, I, I think it's just, it's, it's too bad. They, they set up like Johan Gruffer's character, like, oh, you're going to follow Lancelot. He narrates it, but then he kind of just gets lost and it kind of makes me sad that Stellan Skarsgård, for example, which I do think is a good actor, but his career survived this, but Johan Gruffer in some ways didn't because this was kind of like, you know, Fantastic Four and this, you know, it was like, oh, poor guy, you know, like, but when he was maybe one of the, the strongest characters, but it was weird that they set the film up like, oh, he's taken away from his village, etc. And then later on, I was like, oh, that was Lancelot. I didn't realize because, you know, again, it was different accents to, you know, the child acted didn't really seem like him. It, it, it was strange. I was going to say, I did get the uh, in the child section, it was Lancelot, considering that little girl was like, Lancelot, Lancelot, Lancelot. I get yeah, it. It's Lancelot. Woo, Lancelot. But yeah, no, I was I was going to say the same thing as David. I think it's just weird just how like nonchalant. And also I sort of got really angry uh, at the way in which they sort of introduced Arthur as like, it's like in the in the Roman, he's just Arthurius. And like, oh, come on. Just come on. What a ridiculous name that is. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's a complete nonsense, the Arturius theory anyway. Yeah. But, um, it's just a coincidence that they two names begin with A-R-T, um, which you can pick you of are. any language in the world. And um, Arp as well, just on its own, is, is a, sort of an old Welsh word for bear too. Um, mm. So that's like one of the sort of... Uh, reasons why it might possibly be that, that that person's name well one thing i wanted to pick up on briefly as well david you mentioned costumes and i wanted to bring up the fact that at the end everyone gets ready to go to the fight and kira knightley gets to wear a bra designed by an alien that has never seen a human being <laughs> so like the alien just get oh can you design a bra for this character like a little bra to fight in it's like oh, okay what do humans look like oh well they're kind of like this rough shape and they've got two breasts like, all right so they're on top of each other is that right and the other guy's like what <laughs> like, um yeah i don't worry i've got it i've got it it's fine and he went away and then they came back and in, instead of it being you know a bra which is a terrible thing to fight in anyway it was a bra that had two pieces of fabric one over the top of the other so like a bit of wind could get in between the two? I don't know. So A, she went into battle in her underwear, which is ridiculous. And, you know, this is a trope. and We've seen a lot of this anyway. But also in a bizarre top that does nothing for anyone other than, you know, make sure that the enemies don't get shocked by her nipples. Whilst also, whilst also being painted blue, she looked like a really shit cosplay version of Avatar. <laughs> yeah, she did. Well, I'll, I'll move into the main final point. Uh, which alludes to what uh, Matt was saying earlier about the summations in this idea of the of the cavalry. So the whole movie is based on one theory, which they mess up in a way that will be offensive to all of us on the podcast listening and fascinated me when I was younger when I first saw it. Um, but so the whole theory is based on um, King Arthur in the literature is completely focused with um, the dragon. That is his symbol. Dragons appear all the time around King Arthur, he's got him on his shield and his sword, and the original description of um, Caladvoc, his sword, has a dragon on it, um, either red or golden, um, which is just um, the side note. Red and gold were the same colour in medieval language because it's all talking about the um, clothes dyeing where the you never quite got the right colour, so red and gold would often be interchangeable. Um, but So people were, okay, well, well, this unique thing about Arthur is that he has the dragon as his symbol. Um, as a coincidence, Roman cavalry, particularly late era Roman cavalry, also used dragon symbols. They had a standard called a draco, which is uh, a long stick, and on the top of it, there's a molded uh, metal dragon head and a long red flag going behind it. So as you ride your horse, it's got this long serpentine tail. So it might sound pretty bloody awesome, really. And so people went, well, the, this Roman cavalry must have been stationed in Britain, so maybe they introduced the symbol of a dragon into Britain and that was picked up as in symbol for King Arthur. And then people, somebody else followed that a bit further and said, oh, we reckon it's the Sarmatians. They might have introduced it. And there's evidence of a Sarmatian unit going to Britain, but not leaving. So that's why there's a Sarmatian theory um, that Arthur is one of these Sarmatian cavalries because they used a Draco and were stationed uh, in Britain in the late era. And in the movie, they kind of do have Draco because um, there's a scene just just before the battle, they all line up on their horses and they've all got the stick with the flag behind it. But for some reason, instead of having it as a red dragon, they're horses. So, which looks weird. But so what it means is someone in the production will have definitely known that these characters should be flying red dragon symbols. 
because the whole movie is based purely on the coincidence that these people would have had a red dragon flag, but they cut it out of the movie, which leads to a lot of questions as to why do they not want to admit that the red dragon or a Welsh flag could possibly be connected with these stories. Um, but uh, I thought that was interesting in terms of that yeah. perspective on the ethnic perspective on the Arthurian stories, as we were talking about earlier, that there's a, a somebody has deliberately written the Welsh out of the history of King Arthur. Yeah, um, and just a tiny point on that. I'm actually down for a, a Sarmatian King Arthur. If they found some evidence somehow that he was Sarmatian, I think that's a really cool story that... Yeah, you know, and just generally as a movie, that would be... If they'd lent, lent, leaned into that more and made them cast actual kind of people who were ethnically similar to Sarmatian. So they were more kind of Turkic, really, kind of more like the um, the Huns. But yeah, that idea of completely alien people being in this landscape and choosing to stay, that's an amazing story in its own right. But instead, they're all just basically English people. Yeah, it does, it does seem, again, like, you know, you can tell from film history, they've always been shy of kind of like, you know, representing Wales, especially when we are a country which has a, a dragon on our flag, etc. Maybe in a you know post-Game of Thrones world, they're like, oh, people do actually like dragons. Maybe before there was some kind of Rick and Morty thought of like, oh, everyone just, you know, like is obsessed with dragons, but they're kind of douchebags or something. Maybe there was the, the dragon heart like put people off or something. I don't know, but it's like... <laughs> well, they have, the, they have the actual kind of the flag on a stick thing. So it's there. Yeah. It, the, only, the only difference is... For people who don't know about it, they wouldn't care that it's a horse or a dragon. Yeah. And the people who do know about it, it's unbelievably offensive to be literally your ethnicity ripped out of its own story. It's it's cultural appropriation is what it is. It's, mm. you know, it's removing an ethnicity from their own stories and applying them to a different ethnicity. Also, just a really random piece of trivia, finally, um, which was something we picked up on. And it is in the, the trivia of this film, which I find weird. There are no opening credits, not even the production company or studio bumpers, only the title, which I was like, is this just the version I'm watching? But no, like the fact that this is on like a trivia page, I'm like, oh, OK, this is a thing. <laughs> the film, for some reason, has no like maybe they just didn't want to be affiliated with it. Just don't put anything in the front of it. Just the fact it starts like King Arthur, like there. It's like, okay, we've already got rid of the epic nature of this, but just going like, yep, we're here. <laughs> so that made me laugh. But uh, yeah, so uh, next we're talking about uh, complete, I think in some ways, 180. Uh, and we're going back to the 80s, uh, which again is of a time in which a very different kind of films. And I, I'll talk uh, again about films that have been related to this because I think it is kind of, telling of you know what you have in store with this excalibur which was released in 1981 is sort of compared to films like krull dragon slayer conan the barbarian willow flash gordon you know i find that these are all very apt and like very uh telling comparisons for this film it is a lot more based on the kind of like fantasy elements with characters like merlin etc uh, the basic summary is Merlin, the magician, helps Arthur Pendragon unite the Britons around the round table of Camelot, even as dark forces conspire to tear it apart. So this was directed by John Borman. Actually quite a sort of like interest in history with this. Uh, he had sort of planned a film adaptation of the Merlin legend as early as 1969. He had like created like a three-hour script uh, which was rejected because they said it was too costly. And uh, they even offered him uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Uh, and then he was sort of like allowed to sh sort of shop it around. Uh, 
then a lot of the sets and imagery were created in with his original vision of Lord of the Rings in mind. Uh, and then eventually they sort of like went back to this project. And yeah, it's surprisingly it also it was kind of like a success. I think like the budget was sort of like about 11 million, something like that. And it was potentially brought in worldwide. It says about 34, um, which only says US and Canada 34 and then gross worldwide 34. So I'm like, did it not even come out in the UK? Or again, are we, are we just being put in within the US numbers? Because again, that, w- that would be troubling for uh, UK moviegoers and uh, being uh, taken out of what should be our his- you know, our history and our legends. But uh, yeah, this film uh, is again, another one with a big cast. A lot of uh, famous faces who had like some of their early career breaks here. You had Nigel Terry as King Arthur, Helen Mirren as Morgana, uh, Nicholas Clay as Lancelot, Sherry Lunfy as Guinevere, Paul Jeffrey as Percival, as Merlin, and then you also see uh, sort of random appearances from actors like Liam Neeson as uh, Gawain, and you've got Patrick Stewart as a character called Leon de Grance. I hope I'm not butchering that. Please correct me if I am, Matt, or die. And uh, yeah, you also get Clive Swift as a uh, ex- Ecto, which I found uh, funny, who was who was in this film. So yeah, this is going down more of the the traditional kind of uh, King Arthur stuff, very of the eighties, very crazy, very like a longer film, and sort of crams a lot of the history in. So, Di, what what is your feelings on on Excalibur? Well, it's a lot more fun than than King Arthur two thousand and four because at least everyone's not mumbling all the time. They're just yeah shouting all the time even when they're meant to be whispering there's a moment where uther is like at the dinner and he sees Egwene dancing and he's meant to be whispering oh, i really fancy that lady and his like friend he goes oh no that's dangerous but he goes i bloody fancy her and his friend goes but what about the pact we should keep this secret and it's the loudest anybody's ever whispered and that's the whole of this movie it's just people going at 6,000 miles an hour. And it's, I thought, a huge amount of fun, actually, re-watching it. It was a lot more fun than I remembered it being in the past. But that might just be because I'm a bit dead to the insanity of things. I think, um, from my perspective, this was a way better movie because it wasn't trying to stretch the um, elasticated fabric of the truth over the barbed wire fence of, of, of what they were trying to create. Like this was a movie where I think people, I don't necessarily think they were having fun. <laughs> Maybe they were, but it, it was a much better movie. And it like just some of the performances in it are absolutely wild. Um, like I was immediately in love with Helen Mirren with a high ponytail, you know, dressed in sexy metal gear. And uh, also just like, Nicole Williamson, uh, Nicole, Nicole, I don't know how it's pronounced, but uh, who plays Merlin. And apparently there was beef between these two characters as well. Um, these two people, they like had fallen out in uh, performance of Macbeth seven years before. But it, those two together on screen, just cheering up the scenery is amazing. And then you've got him saying things like, the days of our kind are numbered. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then he's a... Uh, all things meet their opposite. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. When watching, uh, when watching this film, especially watching uh, Merlin's acting, 
I just went to David because obviously we're like all four of us have done sketches in the past. I just basically went to David. This is where Dai gets a lot of his acting like advice from. <laughs> There's definitely a way where Dai just copies a lot of these mannerisms. <laughs> oh, yeah, I agree. I'm going to get you a metal skull cap you can just yeah. wear around. <laughs> it's my dream. <laughs> I sometimes a dream, sometimes a nightmare. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite lines was, Looking at the cake is like looking at the future. Until you've tasted it, what do you really know? And then, of course, it's too late. And then Arthur takes a bite of it and he's like, too late. <laughs> it's just like, what? Like, again, that's like in one of the dinner scenes, which everyone's like loud and dancing and stuff. And he's just there like, looking at a cake is like looking at the future. And you're like, what is going on here? Can I also say, I'm super on board for Bristolian Arthur. Oh my god! Yeah. I like how we're on board for a salmation, Arthur. Kind of hello there. I pulled their, their sword from the stone. What's going on there? There, there were times where his his accent was a mixture of like West Country, but also like really, really deep Belfast. Like there were just moments. Well, a lot of actors are in it because a lot of the, a lot of them are Irish actors. So every now and again, people suddenly sound really Irish. Yeah. Oh god, yeah, like Liam Neeson. Yeah, that would make sense. Actually, I didn't think of that at the time. I, I. I saw it as more of a like, well, maybe not. I didn't think he was American, but that kind of like, oh, somebody's struggling with an accent again, mixed up between the different dialects. But yeah, actually, the fact that if he's Irish, that would make sense. Well, you see it with Percival as well. Like, I think that it's sort of a representation of them becoming like the like a royal or sort of an aristocratic figure. Because Arthur starts off as this like country bumpkin, but Percival is the same. And then as the film progresses and he becomes, you know, Sir Percival, then his accent sort of changes into this slightly more heroic, you know, uh, sort of uh, speech pattern. Yeah, I think it, it's a deliberate choice to try to represent. He, basically, he's not a good enough actor to represent a man going from like the age of 17 to 90. Um, and he tries to do that by a series of UK accents. <laughs> he's like, so Somerset, that's a child's accent. The Midlands, oh, that's an adult accent. And an old man is from Northern Ireland. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, another thing I really enjoyed about this, uh, relating to the very loud speaking, is the very loud armor. Like in, in literally, yeah. why don't they ever take it off? Why are they all like dressed in this? Like they've all got one outfit and they just clunk around in it. The amount of times people are uh, going to doing the business but wearing full armor, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, or eating, just sat around the table like. <laughs> Just making and the amount of times are in water as well. There's a big thing in the movie about half submerging people in water. Like a lot of the key scenes, like Arthur um, sort of becoming the king, and they're all up to their waists in water. And it happens about, I think I counted like five or six instances of this, not including the Lady of the Lake. Yeah, yeah. It's constant there. They're all, always, but you always think, must be terrible on the poor armor. Just going to rest immediately. I kind of did enjoy that element, though, is that, again, when you look at, like, the storybooks and you have that very typical, like, the pointed, like, you know, armor. And, like, again, when I was young, I used to have, like, like the medieval toy sets of, like, Playmobil and stuff. And I had, like, a castle and you could, like, have, like, a battering ram, which would, like, bulldoze down a, a wall and stuff like that. And a lot of the knights would be, like, they'd have these little purple feathers or there was a gold one and a white one. And I was watching it thinking, like, oh, this is like that. Because a lot of the time, Hollywood can be a bit more, like, oh, it's, like scale it back or maybe for historical accuracy of being like you know this just make it a bit less over the top you know more of a 
practical helmet. So I did enjoy here that they did have kind of like, you know, the wings and like, you know, the jaggedness and like, you know, mine looks like a wolf and mine looks like a, you know, a horse and a dragon and all that kind of stuff. So it very much did embrace that. And again, after watching the 2004 King Arthur, I was like, how is this, the 80s film, better production values? Because I felt here, again, for a film that was so dated and old, I didn't really question any of the visual effects or anything, apart from that jokey one I mentioned earlier where Merlin literally just jump cuts out of a scene, but I just found that comedically funny. But apart from that, I thought it stood up quite well for, like, you know, again, the times they were making it. Well, I mean, the thing that you mentioned to me, literally right at the beginning of the film, you went... And just like that, there's already more castles in this film than there was in the other Arthur film. Mm. And there was literally just the sieging of one castle. You could also kind of get like a vibe of like, this seemed like a nightmare kind of production. Because like you said, Matt, there was already beef between like the performers with the whole Macbeth situation. But also, again, it just seemed like one of those in which like you hear about it on uh, like different sets etc like the shining and stuff like that you know which it was like oh it was an uncomfortable environment or like you know the directors like throwing everything at it and it seemed like that with this film of like you know he had a very specific vision and i was reading up and apparently the initial fight scene had to be filmed three times uh because you know it was filmed at night and all of the filming they did came out underexposed so uh, due to like a fault with the exposure meter so the cameraman apparently had a nervous breakdown and like had to quit the film because of it and i was like yeah i can imagine that would have happened because this seemed to be such like dedication to like the visuals and like music especially like oh god don't even get me started on the music oh yeah because they use the Karina Bermana, don't they by uh carl Orff in this film yeah well so they, they didn't have a budget for the music so it's mostly from um the Wagner's ring cycle because it was free because it was yeah. out of copyright that's what i thought it and was so almost all the music is just stolen from <laughs> bits of the ring cycle but then why did they not use it fully the way through most of the time it just kind of weirdly faded out from scenes i was like why didn't you just keep it going i think the the best moment is definitely where uh it's where some of mordred's men are going can you hear that and it's the music started playing and david was just like it's almost as if they have a massive boombox just like playing it around with them as they go. I think that is the best scene in the movie though, where Arthur like comes back to life and they're all riding through the woods and all the kind of trees are coming back to life and it's got that epic music going. That's so much fun. I um I, I was quite interested in uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Ken Russell's The Devils. And I, I initially I was like, is this Ken Russell? And then I looked up and obviously it was John Borman, but they they kind of have like weird little similarities in there because Ken Russell's The Devils is about this priest in uh, in France in the medieval times who was like uh, tried for witchcraft. And it's just like these very dramatic looking stone sort of buildings, like that weird uh, cross that seemed to glow in the background. And uh, I, I loved all that stuff about it, actually. And yeah, the use of music. I love the fact that when they're riding through the forest, all of the blossoms are flying off the trees into their face. And I was like, that's good, but it's really shit in the way that it's been done. So it's really bad in the way it's been done. Um, because obviously I think it was just the limitations of the camera work at the time. That would be more dramatic now, probably slow motion forever. But it was just them riding through the forest with a whole bunch of tree blossoms blowing in their face. Yeah, it almost reminded me of um, the Baz Luhrmann, like Romeo and Juliet in the sense of like, this is like what this wanted to be, but obviously for the 80s in this kind of like, oh, and just make this sort of bombastic, like 
adaptation of this film by putting like crazy music in it and being very like dramatized and making it very you know like theatrical and like a lot of the actors etc seem to be embracing that of like taking the sort of like cheesiness and the theatrics of it very seriously as we mentioned with like Merlin etc and, and and the music etc it seemed very much like it was just going for this kind of like just be bold <laughs> yeah well my interpretation of it is um i have here the le, le mort d'arthur um which if you can see on the camera is gigantic and is 834 pages guess how many contents chapters there are in this book 45 i was gonna say 50 so there's 21 books each one is divided between 15 to 20 small chapters oh wow so you're talking hundreds of chapters but can you imagine like this whole book they're trying to do that whole thing in two hours so of course you've got to be as loud and fast and ridiculous as possible because you're just trying to fit an absurd amount in an entire lifetime in about two minutes so i think that says you know kind of the struggle that they were dealing with in that movie of trying to get all that across but can you imagine they say they were trying to make it a lord of the rings movie originally and you can see in a lot of the costumes particularly those black armors that people wear you can see they look quite orcish in the designs of bits and things you can imagine them being orcs but imagine if they had done this style for the lord of the rings like how mad would that be like all three lord of the rings in one movie yeah and nicole williamson as uh as gandalf gandalf oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, i kind of like that <laughs> you can see a lot of that in like i said i you know i was impressed by the kind of budget by it and and again to go with the kind of the elements of what i was talking about of them being very like bold and like artistic but then also probably plagued by a lot of problems like apparently the scenes between like uh lancelot and guinevere was like played by like mosquitoes whenever they were doing scenes which like caused a lot of discomfort it's like oh man like that that must have been rough yeah, I, I noticed that the, the scenery, it looked like a well-lit Dagobah. Like, <laughs> it just looked like somebody set up a few lights around. It genuinely looked uncomfortable to be in. Uh, it, it, wasn't it filmed? Because like, obviously John Borman is also famous for directing Zardos, one of the worst films ever made. Yeah, I think it was filmed in like more or less exactly the same kind of locations as Zardos was. Uh, and if you haven't seen Zardos, like, probably don't watch it. Just look at look for memes about it instead. Um, yeah, apparently it's basically filmed. He just filmed it on his doorstep in Ireland. Apparently he was close enough to his house he could go home to bed. <laughs> so, and I think he did the same as Ardos. He's not not the most sort of ambitious filmmaker if he's just filming in his garden, basically. That is student-level production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, while I did appreciate a lot of visuals, like I loved like when... Merlin had those like creepy like red eyes and stuff that looked terrifying but then on the other hand I, I complimented the armor earlier I was kind of terrified by the gold armor that the sun wore like that just looked why like... did it have nipples <laughs> why did that armor have nipples like what the hell it very much reminded me of like 70s like doctor who villains kind of like this is like unsettingly you know like badly made which makes it like more terrifying yeah i agree yeah and similar to the last movie it's one where the main villain never meets the hero like arthur and mordred don't meet until the very end and when they do have their final battle like they kind of he says father let me embrace you 
and then they both stab each other and then Arthur just pushes him out of the way like nothing he just killed his own son and he just kind of just yeah. shoves him he's like bugger off now I'm gonna do he's more concerned about his sword it's weird actually because um at least in this film he's got the connection to who this person is but the, I think the real villains or the real sort of battle is between Merlin and uh, and Morgana isn't it yeah the most interesting drama is really yeah and Merlin manages to kind of come back by the end, which works quite well, I think. And hey, as well, about this in comparison to Arthur, um, not Arthur, sorry, uh, King Arthur, is that you had all that money, you'd, Lord of the Rings had been created, Gladiator had been created, they could not make a good battle scene. This film just pumps in a lot of smoke, <laughs> puts a lot of trees, and then has people like just hitting each other with swords, and that seems to kill it. And it's better by a factor of 100. It's so much better. It's because it's character-driven. Like, every one of the battles, there's a character trying to achieve something and, like, expressing themselves. So the, the best, the really, I think the best bit in the movie is, we said earlier, when he gets made king and knighted in the moat. Like, that whole battle sequence is about him trying to rescue his friend and prove that he's king. And, it, you know, it's character-driven action. Whereas in King Arthur 2004... It's just arbitrary. There's a load of faceless people coming through a door. I suppose yeah. you better fight them for a while. Like there's, um, yeah. that's the difference. I do have one specific question, which is sort of buggy, which did sort of bug me a little bit. Just because obviously a lot of this story was basically just focusing on like the the vast majority of the prominent stories of King Arthur. Why did they choose to call it Excalibur? Yeah, <laughs> I, I was thinking this too. Yeah, but you've got to call it something, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, you know, they would be limited, you know, the story about, like, King Arthur. Yeah, you could just call it King Arthur or The Legend of King Arthur, and it's the same. I mean, Excalibur is is punchy. I think it needs an exclamation mark and a few musical (laughs) numbers. But, yeah, it kind of is about the sword, I guess, too. (laughs) The sword is the main character. The challenge is there's so many early movies. So there's already a Knights of the Round Table in 1950-something, um, another one where they push over Stonehenge. And there's um, and there's a Camelot, which is the musical version. So, yeah, there are already... I think they're probably looking at all the movies made already, and it's probably just that the name Excalibur hadn't already been taken, so they had to go for it. And I think it, it fits with that kind of, as well, like 80s like action stuff of, like, you know, Conan, you know, and, like willow you know it's very much of that kind of like heroic you know flash gordon legend you know it's it's the kind of putting the the emphasis on like the treasured item or the hero etc and i kind of did like that by the end as well of when he was just like you know leave the sword for somebody else to find and all this kind of stuff and i was like man we we, we really could do with that right now maybe <laughs> like can, can somebody please find this sword like in 2021 like i, I kind of like this film did make me believe that that sword could potentially still be out there in a lake somewhere and we need somebody to find it. That's what my political campaign is going to be based on, is I have the magic sword, but for me. <laughs> I was actually impressed by that bit at the end because I thought that, that they would skip it for time because that was always one of my favourite parts of like Arthurian legend when I was a kid, when he was like dead uh, or when he was dying and he, he gave the... Uh, uh, Percival took the, the sword from him. And, and then pretended to throw it away. And then he knew because he didn't know, obviously, about the about the lady in the lake. And I was just j- j- quite pleased as, a, as an Arthur nerd that that was included in this. 
yeah, a lot of those inclusions do work really well when they actually include the genuine, like, from a kind of a, a literary point of view, a lot of this movie is take lifted directly from um, the literature. So particularly Uther's story at the beginning, um, which is really the compelling thing that drives Arthur, the fact that his entire um, right to be king is based on his dad. But his dad's an absolute villain. Like, he's a yeah. rapist. Um, so his entire ego is based on this horrible crime, which is what helps temper his character and make him wiser. Um, but that's something very sim similar in a lot of um, mythological characters, this, uh, these ideas of, um, you know, inheritance and how it's not always that great and, and stuff like that. Well, um, it's, it's historical as well, isn't it? Because it's basically the story of um, Alexander the Great, too. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think loads of kings. Um, yeah. And similar to... Um, dad who the, set up the basics for him and uh, also his dad was a prick and hmm. as a result of it um arthur or alexander the great one of the do amazing things or yeah horrific. and sigurd the dragon slayer is, is very similar to arthur as a figure whose uh dad was a absolute knob and uh so sigurd has to sort of you know it's a very um it's oedipal is what well, the whole thing is very freudian yeah in the, you know arthur his dad is an absolute villain. He sleeps with his, in most of the stories, it's his auntie he sleeps with. In this one, it's his sister. Um, but then he gets murdered by his own son, um, who, in most of the stories, his son marries, uh, Mordred marries Guinevere at the end as well. He forces it to. Yeah. So he kind of marries his his stepmother and murders his own dad. So, um, which is one of the things that makes it so compelling as a story. And in this movie, one of the reasons, the bit that is really disappointing is why that relationship between the father and son is so completely ignored. Um, and he literally just shoves him out of the way at the end. This really compelling idea is just completely dropped at the wayside. But I guess that's the big challenge of making Arthur movies. There's so much to put in. You can't make one movie that covers it all in one go. I did I did appreciate that they had like the Merlin and Arthur bond there in some ways. Like almost that was like a father and son relationship because often it's painted as like, oh, Merlin is like his go-to guy, like his sort of magical assistant. But here, again, it was that kind of like, Dumbledore and Harry and Gandalf and Frodo sort of relationship of like you know a, f a father figure but also the kind of like adoptive father because obviously he sort of like takes him as a child and all that kind of stuff but I also appreciated that there was that element of the supernatural with Merlin as well it wasn't just like oh I'm a, a wizard you know who's just learned this stuff there was like that stuff which from what I understand goes into the kind of legends of Merlin and of like he's from a different time and a different world and he's experienced all these different things which is why he's so weird and it brings in a lot of the weird supernatural elements and the weird dialogue he has which is you know fun when he's talking to like Morgana of like you know what is that root what is this and he has his you know like you said Matt again trapped in a crystal and all that kind of stuff it it was like the the more elaborate elements which often they'll shy away from but I enjoyed that and I thought it was quite quite a good pivotal moment at the end where he was like, you know, Merlin, if you could only come to me now. And, you know, like when he like arrived at the end, et cetera, it was like, I was like, okay, you've built this up well. One of the things I think I would like to see based on this film is a reimagining of Mordred. I've never, ever seen anything about him. And one of the things about a lot of Arthurian TV shows and Arthurian kind of uh, books or stories or whatever is he doesn't come along until so much later that he's often just completely ignored. And you've got like, you know, um, Morgan Le Fay, you've got Merlin. And then like, I guess Mordred ends up being the big bad in, in it all. But I would love to see a, a, like a reimagining or a reappreciation of him because 
Like he, um, he's got a pretty messed up storyline, hasn't he? You know, yeah. he's sort of Look, um, the the Once and Future King by T. H. White, um, which is what um, the Sword in the Stone, the Disney movie, is based on. The beginning of it. Um, but that book has a really, really interesting, totally bananas interpretation of Mordred. But there's there's a full book dedicated to Mordred, kind of as a character, as a very human character interacting. Um, although that book, it was written during while well, the Second World War was on, and T. H. White fled to Ireland. Um, and so he turns Mordred into literally the leader of the Nazi party. And no he, he has this weird thing with time where now it's the modern day and all of Mordred's goons are like walking around in black shirts. And um, that goes really, really bananas by the end. But that's, I think, one of the most successful versions of him as an actual human character where he yeah. he sort of has this real belief in Arthur's court and the idea of um, justice. And so when he finds out about this, um, the affair that Lancelot and Guinevere had, He's like really furious about it because he thinks that Lancelot is a hypocrite sort of thing. But he is a hypocrite. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting character in that story, absolutely. But, you know, the thing that makes it as powerful and amazing as it is, as a story, is because you've been with these characters for an entire generations of people. So by the end of this saga, when this whole new thing comes up and all these character relationships that have, we've been reading with for like 800 pages or more, suddenly all falls apart it's um really really compelling and some of this stuff is really amazingly written um so perhaps if you were able to make a sustaining film series it could be amazing but you've got to be able to make sort of probably 12 or 15 really good movies first before you reach that end point i'm surprised they haven't gone kind of again like as a lot of what you mentioned it reminds me so much again of like greek mythology of obviously like crazy relationships and like you know uh, family ties and all of that kind of stuff but then it it's kind of like Perseus in like classic titans or something is surprising Hollywood hasn't kind of like looked at him as a character and gone like oh yeah the father of this like almost like godlike character you know how is he kind of like feeling betrayed and you know he's the you know the every man or the the normal person etc he could be like the hero or the villain etc so yeah I, I'm, I'm surprised they haven't sort of gone down that that route finally then so we'll, we'll now go to our section which is the movie vault uh, which sort of encapsulates movies for all time do either of these films deserve to go into the movie vault to kind of represent king arthur movies you know like i'll ask you know both of you do you you know, this is a chance, obviously, for you to say generally some of the problems that you do get with King Arthur films. You know, is there has there ever been a good one? Um, obviously, we'll focus on these two today. But but yeah, what, what are your final thoughts on these two as Arthur movies? Do either of them sort of go in? And yeah, what are the typical tropes and problems that you see with these kind of adaptations? 2004 can bugger off. It's an incredibly mm. boring movie. It's just it's a really bad made movie. I think one of the challenges we see with a lot of these is, the, is just the challenge of making these sort of medieval epics. I think it's just a really difficult production job. And so no matter what you're trying, it's only going to be every now and again you, you actually succeed in making a decent movie. But even in that sense, it's a rubbish movie with no point. It's sort of hints at racial elements that it kind of is pretty dodgy with. So that can just get bottom. Um, I think Excalibur is worth remembering. I think it's so wild and memorable and fun to watch uh, and as other movies go i think it's the most successful to be honest i think everything else is worse than this even include considering the fact that this is not a very good movie everything else is worse i i agree with you there Di. i think that it's a it's not a great movie but it is a bad movie that you can love 
Um, yeah. I think the difference between the two is Excalibur is like an incredibly, it looks like it's an incredibly expensive play made by like a billionaire who's never actually seen a play before and only ever seen movies and then tried to force that format onto the stage. Whereas King Arthur is an incredibly expensive movie that looks like it was made by cosplayers and filmed by a National Trust drone pilot. Like <laughs> it has absolutely no place in the movie vault of all time. But yeah, I would put Excalibur in there, like you said, just generally for being a really ambitious uh, attempt at encapsulating a massive law and doing a pretty decent job of it. Yeah. And the other detail I'd mention is, um, but as we said, with Arthur 2004, they just don't bother to interpret anything. There's, they have this idea that they don't bother to include history. They don't bother to even include any relationship to the source material whatsoever. It's just a coincidence of names. You could rename every single character in this and it wouldn't make any difference. Whereas Excalibur is a genuine attempt to adapt a single source. Um, and in many ways, it's really, really interesting. And the bits that it really gets um, truthful to the original source material are really good. But also, I won't go into it now because we, but um, the, the interpretation of the Holy Grail is very different from any of the original sources. He really, really completely reinterpreted it to fit within that story. But in its own right, that's really interesting. So from a, if you're interested in Arthurian literature, Excalibur is actually one of the more interesting movies because it's genuinely engaging with an Arthurian source. I think I have to, I think I have to agree with you guys. I think this is where I've got to get out of my sort of really, really cynical, oh, hammy things can't be enjoyable, can't be worth remembering, uh, and just actually appreciate. Because uh, there were moments where I was, as much as I was laughing at the film, I was laughing, which is something that like King Arthur just never made me do. So yeah, I, yeah, I could agree with Excalibur going in. Yeah, and I, th- I think, like you said, Di, it, you know, it seems to be coming from a kind of, like, loving place. It, you know, it's well-intentioned, at least. You know, again, it's kind of unfortunate, like with other projects. You're like, oh, you know, you had to cram it all into this this one film or, you know, there was certain restrictions. But again, I, I felt that there was such effort made, at least in sort of, like, the, the visuals and, you know, certain aspects of the performances, you know, and, and you know, I'm happy for it to just go in just for Nicole Williamson as Merlin. I just think that that is just a crazy, weird, fun performance. So, yeah, to to represent, you know, Arthurian films, in goes Excalibur into the movie vault. We're in the end game now. Oh, oh, so okay, end game time. So this is a loving game I like to call, uh, um, uh, it, it's something in Old English, I, I don't know. Um, basically, one thing we haven't talked about with the Arthurian legends is that obviously the way in which they're often told early on, obviously we haven't gotten into the uh, the actual language of any of these stories. So I wanted to bring a little bit of that, of that to this podcast, because I'm a sadist. What I've basically done is I've taken a series of film titles and I've translated them into Old English. Uh, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the titles of these films and I want you to tell me, uh, fastest first, what you think the film is. Uh, So I got a list of films from a website, which is how many of these random films have you seen? It's like one of those challenge lists. Uh, I put them through a relatively dodgy translator, so not all of the words have been translated, but then again, there are going to be some words 
and like some names that don't have old English equivalents, because I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't have had things for like, you know, a MacBook, for example. Um, and what I want you to do is once I've given you the title, I want you to basically, by saying your name as quickly as you can, uh, as your buzzer, uh, to basically tell me what you think the film is. So Can we instead use a line of dialogue from an Arthurian film as our buzzers? If if you can make them equivalent length, because... I just want to say, it's only a model. <laughs> okay, so so Matt wants to say it's only a model. Di, what are you going to say? Um, well, I, I'm going to put my cards on the table and say I should win this game, because I have just been reading the whole of um, Gawain in the Green Knight in Middle English. Okay, <laughs> okay. So I'm going to say bonk, which is the Middle English for horse. Okay. So Gawain, ride around on a bonk. Okay, Matt, are you okay with that? I am. Right. So let's practice your buzzers. Matt. It's only a model. Die. Bonk. Cool. So, like I said, uh, where it... Where the, uh, the the word hasn't translated in the translator I'm using, I've simply just left in the word. So some of these are going to be slightly easier because they have like one or two words like that. Uh, some of them are purely what has been translated. Die, I apologise if it turns out the translation is bad, but that's part of the game. Anyway. It's like, it's like Welsh. We're going back to the Welsh again. <laughs> but you say that. Some of these are probably going to sound like Welsh. <laughs> um, I also apologise for my pronunciation. I obviously, unlike Di, have not in any way studied Old English. Uh, mm. My university degree was given an option to study Beowulf in the original language. Uh, I turned it down because everyone else told me to. Anyway, are we ready? Okay. Title number one. Foro Berednesiriorilsk Salesman. It's only a model. Matt? The death of a salesman. I'm looking for death of a salesman? It is, yeah. <laughs> oh, there was a clue in that somewhere. Yep. <laughs> I, that's just going to be part of this game, is how many films can you think of with that <laughs> random name, uh, random word in it. Okay, are we ready for number two? And here a boss's wit. Again, and here bosses wit. Is it dinner with lunch, dinner with your boss? I mean, bunk. Is it dinner with your boss? So die is out for this round. Horrible bosses. Is it horrible bosses? <laughs> it's, it's horrible bosses too. Oh. <laughs> 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 Oh, that's funny. <laughs> okay, you might want to be you might want to be quick off the mark with this next one. Are you ready? Yes. Yeah. Twenty twelve. Bonk. Die. Twenty twelve. Oh. <laughs> oh it's twenty twelve. <laughs> Are we ready for number four? Yeah. Stem Siorlisk. Ides. Stem, Siorlisk, Ides. Or Ides. Long is it? Done. The Ides of March film. Say that again. The Ides of March. Is that a film? It's not that. I'm thinking of Ides. Stem, Siorlisk, 
Eaters. Eaters, yeah. God. Uh, um, pass. Okay. It's scent of a woman. Mm. Why scent has turned into stem, I don't know. <laughs> or steam. Okay. This is hard. <laughs> Yep, this is one of the most difficult games. Like, be thankful. Originally, this was going to be movie speeches in Old English. I quickly gave up on that idea. <laughs> anyway, number five. The Good Modwellig Mr. Ripley. It's only a model. Matt? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's not that. Die. Is it the Talented Mr. Ripley? It's the Talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> Yeah, because Mr. and Ripley didn't translate. <laughs> Surely it would be like Yarl Ripley or something. You'd think, but it constantly changed every time I put words into it. Okay, number six is coming up. Um, this is also where the translator just blatantly gave up. So are you ready? Yeah. Dimph by M, binter of twee, prefix with meaning, kitties. <laughs> <laughs> Dimph but M Binta O Twi prefix with meaning kitties. <laughs> so weird. I will say with meaning. Yeah, yeah it basically it gave up, so it was just like I, I don't know. It just took out the meaning. This that's not part of the film title. I don't know why it put that in. Um I will say I've there is a name that goes at the beginning of this film that I've taken out because I think it makes it a bit too obvious. If you don't get it in five seconds, I'll say what the what the name at the beginning of the film is. Hi. It's only a model. Matt? Is it Cats? It's not Cats, but you are sort of on the right line. <laughs> <laughs> Die, any advances? Or would you like to hear the name that goes at the beginning of the film? Yeah, go on. Let's have the name. So the name that goes at the beginning of this film is Garfield. Oh, Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. Uh, yep, yep, it's, it's Garfield, Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. My guess was going to be Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. Kitty Galore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number seven. Min Sisters Here Deman. That's a bit like you're doing a dodgy Jamaican accent. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say it again, please? Uh, mean Sisters Here Deman. Oh, Mean Girl. Bonk. Die. Mean girls. Oh, I wish it's not it mean was girl. that. Like, mean sisters. <laughs> <laughs> My sisters are mean. Mean sisters, what were the last two words? Uh, here, demand. It's all one word. Mean sisters, here, demand. Okay. Is it little women? It's my sister's keeper. Oh, no way. <laughs> We're on the right right path there, at least. Okay. Number eight. Nidrit Datarum. Nidrit Datarum. Are there any clues? Nope, that's literally all I can give you for this. I think your pronunciation is actually more damaging to, to die getting... <laughs> 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 well, um, it was it was Middle English that I'd been reading, not Old English. Which yeah, is very very different. So that's where that's my excuse. Somewhere is it above. John Wick? <laughs> it's not John Wick. <laughs> Any advances die? 
<laughs> no idea. Okay. It's due date. <laughs> Why do you that? have films that, that people know? That <laughs> I know. I love due date. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr., Zach Galifianakis, but like a uh, road movie. I quite enjoyed that. I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Number nine. Kicking Medemi. Blanc. Die. Is it kick ass? It's not kick ass. I'd be impressed if there was an old English for ass. Well, I suppose there were donkeys, <laughs> but yeah. Was it kicking? Kicking Medemi. Kicking chicken. No. <laughs> chicken licking. You're going for chicken licking. Yeah. It's chicken little. Oh, I, I didn't know when they give you a clue. I'm sorry. <laughs> I might have helped you, Matt. Or like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the next one I think is quite obvious, so get ready. Wing Jungle Bok. <laughs> Tell me a model. Matt? The Jungle Book? Yes, the jung- Jungle Book. That is Wayne's World. <laughs> I thought it was going to be Wayne's World. <laughs> okay, and with three questions to go, the scores at the moment are die with three, Matt with two. So it's very much everything to play for. <laughs> Okay. okay, number 11. Puede milite. Puede milite. It's so tough to guess something that doesn't have, like, a Latin background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, unless milite is something to do with military. I'm thinking, trying to think of names that have, like, military in them. I was trying to think of, like, dates or something. I was just thinking mil, like, I don't know. Like with the two or like million or something. I was like, I can give you a clue. One of those sort of inspirations is sort of correct. So it's either something to do with military or things within the military, or it's about dates. Blanc, die, warhorse. Is it warhorse? Battleships. It's small soldiers. Oh, what? I used to, uh, that's the only movie I could think of with like soldiers in the name. Yeah. I was like, I think I'm an idiot if I suggest that. <laughs> no one's seen it. Honestly, like these games are just like, even if you might sound like an idiot, like just go for it. It's probably right. <laughs> okay, next one. James Tadugo, no, Tadugo Dears. Blanc. Die? Is it James and the Giant Peach? It's James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> okay. And now we come to number 13, and this is my favourite title of the bunch. And if you get this, you will have my eternal respect. Number 13. Glom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Glom. <laughs> Glom. It's only a model. Matt? Is it Twilight? Is it Twilight? It's Twilight. <gasps> oh, wow. <laughs> the eternal respect has been won. Yep. How did you get that? Gloaming. Yeah. The word mm. gloaming, which is like, you know, the, the Twilight. Yeah. I thought it was like the blob or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's the point. But glum, first of all, but then I, I kind of my head just sort of thought like gloaming, 
which is obviously uh, not particularly common word, but just felt like it was right. <laughs> like that is name. Yeah, but what I love is that what loads of people think is like a really interesting sort of teen drama. It's just within old English. It's just called Glom. It's just so so stupid. Okay, but with that, and that's the end of the end game. So with a score of uh, four points to three, Die is the winner. No, I refuse that. I, I'm giving that to Matt. I step, step aside. That was inspired at the end. So what, so what you're saying is you're willing to give Matt uh, Matt two points because of the extra respect points. You did also have the small soldiers one, <laughs> technically. but I'll accept it only because it's in fitting with the end of King Arthur 2004. Where, for, for no apparent reason, Merlin, who is already the leader, makes King Arthur the leader. Nobody knows why. Okay, well, in that case, I think I think we just accept it as a tie and just leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations both, I guess. To finish off as a gift of Middle English, would you like a bit of really saucy Middle English from Gawain in the Green Knight? Yes, we would. Wow. It is, uh, ye are welcome to my cause. Yauri awen wan wale, me behoves of Finforcer, your servant be Anshale. Which means, you are welcome to my body. To choose at your own pleasure, I am behoven to your fine force, your servant I shall be. Ooh. So, says the lady, creeps into bed with Gawain and says, you're welcome to my body. They were a bunch of randy bastards in the medieval. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the one bit they didn't leave out of uh, the King Arthur film, where just Keira Knightley's like, yeah, I'm going to sleep with you now. It's like, okay. <laughs> but, uh, just out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's in Excalibur as well, where literally, like, Merlin is just... He wages entire... war to screw a woman. Yeah, like, I just... <laughs> Merlin just keeps complaining about it, like, all of this was created from lust. I brought the dragon's breath for your lust. <laughs> I was like, just say it. He's horny. <laughs> but <laughs> keep saying lust. But, uh, yeah, thank you guys. Well done to both of you for getting uh, points and eternal respect. Uh, it's been fun, as always. And, uh, yeah, well done, obviously, to Excalibur for getting into the movie vault. Uh, Matt, where can we find yourself? Obviously, a uh, chance for you to plug all the great stuff you were talking about earlier as well in terms of the projects you're working on. Where, where can we catch you? Where's the wedding? What's the address? We'll be there. <laughs> no, so uh, at the moment, the, the my sort of main sort of podcast outlet is The Measure of a Fan, which is a Star Trek podcast in which two Star Trek nerds and a Star Trek noob watch all of Star chronologically. Um, it's basically a torture chamber for the noob who's forced to watch Enterprise, which is by far the worst of, of them all, uh, before we get onto anything good. But it's been, it's been fun. We've made lots of jokes about it. Die, where can we catch yourself? Oh, what, what do we read? What, tell us our teachings. What do we go check out for Arthurian? <laughs> go well, to the library. there's a huge amount of stuff. The main thing to read, which I think Matt would agree with, is the Mabinogion. Um, which uh, Mabinogi is the word for story um, and that's all the really early uh, Welsh stuff not all of it but a lot of it collected together one big book and it is fascinating it's beautiful it's absolutely wonderful um, you won't get much of the what you might imagine King Arthur is but you'll get a lot of stuff that's really really good awesome can't wait and are you uh, both excited for the Green Knight? statically so I can't wait 
I'm overwhelmed with excitement for how hopefully insane that movie is. Yeah, let's hope we get it Caught soon. In it. That's brilliant. Yeah, I know. I saw. I was like, Dev Patel and a fox. Just there's something looks right about that. Just, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So hopefully, Green Knight comes out soon. Hope everyone in America is enjoying it, and uh, you've enjoyed our discussion all about uh, Arthur. Uh, you can catch ourselves and this podcast over on freshtakehub.com slash wellgoodmovies where you can also catch a bunch of other content and uh, articles and features etc you can catch us on all the socials on twitter facebook and instagram at wellgoodmovies uh, please do give us a rate and a follow in uh, it all does help us uh, Craig anything lastly from yourself yeah, um, I'm going to say some very poignant words because there's a good chance that after the next episode I go to prison for murder. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys all listening to the podcast and give us, giving us support. Uh, please continue to do that. However, can you please stop making me suffer by having to make me watch ridiculous films when you win the end games, such as what I'm having to look at next time in Pudsy the Dog the Movie, right? Can you Can you not? Can you not? Please, just, just, please, give me some salvation for the love of God. <laughs> Have mercy. So, yeah, you heard it, you. <laughs> Be gentle to Craig. Thank you, Di and Matt, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we do hope to talk about King Arthur again. As we said, there's lots of adaptations out there. I'm sure there's lots of bonkers, crazy stuff that we can dive into. And uh, yeah, we, we look forward to having you back on in the future. So thanks again, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Bye, guys. guys. Bye. Bye. See ya. Enjoy the Holy Grail. I didn't know we had a king. <laughs> You're going for chicken licking.